Hello and welcome to the OASBA podcast. My name is Callie Wells, Director of Marketing and Communications, and I'll be serving as your host today. This week, we've got updates from Jim Rowan and Katie Johnson in a segment of a webinar with AOS's Marnie Fredrickson on ESSER and uniform guidance. First up, a few reminders. OASBO is co-hosting three webinars next week. You can register for the Payment in Lieu, T2 reports, and Energy Volatility webinars at learn.oasbo-ohio.org. July 11th through the 25th, OASBO will be offering its Essentials of School Business Boot Camp. This includes all six courses that are required in OASBO's ODE-approved Pathway for Treasures licensure offered back-to-back. This includes the brand new Essentials of Leadership course. You can attend all six courses or pick and choose which you would like to attend, even if it's just one. This is a great opportunity for those pursuing licensure, but also for those just looking to brush up on a topic. Applications for this year's Leadership Institute are open and due June 30th. Be sure to get your application in for this engaging and interactive three-month fully online leadership masterclass. Learn more and download the application at oasbo-ohio.org. Next is an update from OASBO's Executive Director Jim Rowan on OASBO's Professional Legal Assistance Program and OASBO's Local Professional Development, or LPDC, Committee. On today's podcast, I'm going to address two different topics that have an impact on current professional members and members that may have either stepped out of the profession or retired and have interest in retaining their license. The first topic we're going to talk about is OASBO's Professional Slash Legal Assistance Fund. This fund is created to benefit all professional members that might have a need to seek legal representation for a business-related matter involving their contract or their employment status. In the event that you would need to use this type of service, you just need to reach out to the OASBO Executive Director file a form requesting the professional assistance, providing as much details regarding the situation as possible, and we will refer you to one of our retained attorneys uh, that can assist you in resolving the matter. We will provide for two hours of initial consultation, and if it's determined through that initial consultation that additional hours are needed to resolve the issue, then the executive committee of OASBO can authorize additional hours so that that attorney can work with a professional member uh, to resolve the matter. The second thing I'd like to talk about today is the OASBO Local Professional Development Committee. Um, For those active treasurers, business managers that are employed in a school district, this does not apply to you. This more applies to someone that is not currently employed as a treasurer or a business manager, someone that is recently licensed or maybe have taken a step away from the profession. It is important that you file your IPDIP with the OASBO Local Professional Development Committee. In order for you to maintain your licensure, you will have to have that IPDIP on file with OASBO And unless you are employed by a district at the time of renewal, you will actually go through OASBO's LPDC for that renewal. Um, Why is it important to get the IPDIP filed? Because until such time that IPDIP is received by OASBO, any hours worked on toward license renewal cannot be counted. Retroactive 
uh, approval is not granted through the OASBO LPDC. However, if you have left a school district and you have hours that you've earned under your previous LPDC, you can submit a reciprocity form or a transfer form from your school district, and that will be submitted to OASBO's LPDC for approval. As with the LPDC in the school district, you still need to have 18 CEUs or 180 contact hours. You can also renew uh, by taking college courses. If you choose to go that route, you can renew directly with the Ohio Department of Education. So for those treasurers that have retired or stepped out of the profession or someone that has just recently received their license that is not yet employed as a treasurer, make sure you get that IP dip into the executive director so we can get that filed with the LPDC. The LPDC meets four times a year. They will approve the IP dip and any hours that you earn throughout your time in the OASBO LPDC can be submitted on a periodic basis. The committee comes together four times a year and will approve those hours as long as they align to the goals that you have outlined in your IP dip. In most cases, all of the OASBO professional development taken through your OASBO transcript can be submitted for approval. You just need to create the uh, the log of hours that are taken, provide any documentation, whether it's your transcript or contact hour certificate, uh, get those on file and we'll get those approved. If you have any questions regarding the professional slash legal assistance fund or OASBO's LPDC, please don't hesitate to reach out to Jim Rowan, executive director at jim at oasbo-ohio.org or feel free to call my cell phone at 513 513- Two eight zero one zero five three. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jim. You can learn more about the Legal Assistance Program at oasbo-ohio.org/legalassistance, and you can learn more about the LPDC on OASBO's website, oasbo-ohio.org, in the Professional Development section of the site. Next, we have an advocacy update from OASBO's Deputy Executive Director Katie Johnson. On Tuesday, the Senate Primary and Secondary Education Committee accepted a number of amendments to uh, the Substitute Flexibility Bill, which is House Bill 583, and a number of those amendments uh, relate to the fixes for the school funding formula uh, as it was um, implemented in House Bill 110. And then in addition to that, uh, there's some modifications to the implementation of the dyslexia requirements. In addition, we had a great meeting with uh, Bob Hinkle and Marty Fredrickson from the Otter State's office. The Otter State Committee had a regular meeting on Tuesday, and we had a great conversation with Bob and Marty and the details of that conversation and uh, the questions that members had uh, submitted to the committee and uh, through the committee to the Otter State uh, will be shared out in the near future. And finally, we have a committee meeting with Aaron Rausch and the Ed Finance Committee on Wednesday. And as always, we appreciate ODE's updates and Aaron being there to provide those updates uh, to the committee. In addition, the committee discussed having a webinar that will focus on the different special funds that can be created through ORC 570513 and how those funds 
impact the forecast and uh, assist with transparency and communication with your boards and communities. So keep a lookout for information on that webinar coming soon. And we expect that we will see additional amendments to House Bill 583 next week. And we will keep you posted on those amendments and uh, the status of uh, that bill as it continues to move through the Senate and then heads back over to the House before they wrap up for the summer. So I hope everybody's doing well. If you have any questions, please never hesitate to reach out to me. And this time of year, we are always encouraging folks to remember to sign up for any committee that you have um, you know, thought that maybe you wanted to get more involved with. This is the time to do it. And just a reminder that there is no requirement to serve on the committees. We want our newer folks to join in. And we really appreciate those who've had um, a number of years of service um, under their belt, um, participating and sharing all of their um, knowledge and experience. So we appreciate all you do and have a great weekend. Thank you, Katie. Next up, we have a portion of a webinar on ESSER and Uniform Guidance Procurement Requirements with Marnie Fredrickson, the Assistant Chief Deputy Auditor at the Ohio Auditor of State's Office. In this segment, she discusses ESSER authorized uses of funding, examples of when schools might use ESSER funding, FAQs, Uniform Guidance, General Procurement Standards, and more. Let's hear what Marnie shared as a part of this April webinar. So do you want to make sure I explain to the group, as Katie mentioned, I myself am not an attorney, but what I'm going to share with you today is the information that we share with our audit staff. This is how we train them. So you're getting the same training that your auditors have, essentially. Uh, you know, IPAs, they might do a little different type of training, but we make this available to them as well. So much of the same information we're going through is somewhat going to be the cheat sheet for an audit. So that's good to know because you'll be as dangerous as your auditors are in federal procurement rules. But as Katie said, this is certainly a complex area. Legally, this is a, an area you may need to work with your legal counsel on. I know sometimes we try to avoid having to engage legal counsel and incur those fees for doing that. But this is certainly one of those areas where it may be necessary and make a lot of sense to get your legal counsel involved in working in some of these complex situations with you. Uh, so as we're going to talk about, we'll go through, we'll provide general training on procurement. And as always, uh, as the independent auditor, I can't give specific legal advice, but I certainly can be here to, and available to you to give general guidance, training, and speak generally about the procurement rules and how they apply with the ESSER program. Uh, knowing that this is an area that many schools are considering procurement activities. But keep in mind, procurement does apply to many of the other education-related federal programs as well. So this is, in itself, the procurement rule is not new. Uh, it has been around for some time. It was temporarily suspended for a period of so many years. Uh, but it is back in effect for most all education programs. So. Generally speaking, the things that we will talk about today do apply in other areas as well. So something to keep in mind there. It's not just ESSER, but certainly that is an area of emphasis right now with all the new funding that you have. Uh, also be aware, if you haven't already visited our website, we have wonderful resources out there available 
for all of your COVID-19 funding. And if you go to the COVID-19 resources on the homepage, it will take you to a menu. And if you click the four clients area on the menu, it will launch a, a number of resources in that area, including frequently asked questions, which we have available as well. But you can find many of the federal procurement materials that we're going to talk about today, including some of the handouts that you'll receive, also available on our website as well. So you can find lots of good information that way. So let's talk a little bit about the ESSER authorized uses of funding. This is important to understand. Uh, ESSER has authorized some inspection, testing, maintenance and repair, replacement and upgrade projects to improve indoor air quality in school facilities. So that can include all your HVAC systems, your air conditioning, your fans, windows and door repair, lots of opportunities there in that allowable use category for some construction type procurement activities. There's also uh, authorization for school facil facilities repairs and improvements. Uh, and this would be anything that would be related to reducing the risk of virus transmission and exposure related to environmental health hazards in order to support the students' health needs. And basically any allowable use of funds under impact aid, which is does include, uh, but is not limited to brand new construction of buildings. So very broad allowable uses here, any one of which could take you down the path of some type of construction project. Keep in mind federal procurement rules are gonna apply to any procurement activity. So this is gonna be any procurement of equipment, and or construction type of activity. Anytime you're looking for goods or services, essentially, uh, at a cost of generally $5,000 or your capitalization threshold, whichever is less. So according to your own policy, whatever you have set as your capitalization threshold for equipment, that is the number, the starting number. It's gonna be that number or $5,000 in terms of where that procurement threshold begins, what types of transactions will federal procurement rules apply to? So that is how you'll determine, but it's generally gonna be equipment, goods and services, including construction. So examples of what you might consider using ESSER funding for, as we mentioned, HVAC projects, the CDC has made very clear that safe school operation is contingent upon good airflow and improving indoor air quality. So this is already authorized by the US Department of Education as one eligible use of funding. Renovations that are necessary, new construction that might be necessary, all of which would be related to renovating existing buildings or construction, construction of new buildings to um, alleviate the overall poor condition of an existing building. So there's still a nexus here with all of these projects to addressing some type of underlying COVID-19 need. That's important to understand. So with ESSER, there is a huge opportunity here for schools to undertake some pretty significant projects, but you still need to keep in mind that nexus to that COVID-19 related need and make sure that you're taking time to document that, 
memorialize the basis for why you're making decisions to undertake these types of activities. What is that nexus? Take time to document that. And we would always recommend that you do so through a board approved resolution so that it's on the record. It's very transparent. That creates an audit trail. It also makes very transparent to the public the decisions that you're making about allowable uses of your ESSER funding. So yes, construction is an authorized use. U.S. Department of Education does address that specifically within their own frequently asked questions. Uh, I believe this same FAQ also appears in the CCIP document library. ODE has brought a lot of this information into their own guidance as well. So you can find it in multiple places. And this does apply for both ESSER and GEAR. So while we talk a lot about ESSER, it really is GEAR as well, because as you know, certain awards with GEAR, those allowable uses sync up very much with the ESSER allowable uses. So if, if you have received GEAR and you have the same allowable uses as the ESSER program with your GEAR funding, these same requirements apply to GEAR as well. Some additional federal guidance on ESSER and eligible uses also includes that individual costs, any spending with ESSER funds must comply with the cost principles. And that does include documentation that the cost is reasonable. So as you're thinking about undertaking construction activities, part of judging reasonableness and being able to document that and substantiate that in an audit is going to be doing some type of analysis. It can be an informal analysis, uh, depending on what level of the procurement threshold you are in, and we'll talk about that later, all the way up to a very formal analysis of the cost versus lease versus rental options. So before you jump to immediately constructing a brand new building, you would want to undertake the activity of analyzing, could we rent this space cheaper and achieve the same outcome than we could if we were to construct something brand new? So that's kind of the judgment you wanna go through. And again, we'll talk about the different methods of procurement and how formal that evaluation needs to be. But in general, those are the types of things you would you would want to document in order to substantiate reasonableness and necessity under the cost principles of the Uniform Guidance Act. It's also important to know that all of these programs must be, again, documenting that nexus to COVID-19 like we talked about and making sure that you have prior written approval from the Ohio Department of Education before undertaking construction projects. Now that, that part we're gonna talk a little bit about with um, the Ohio Department of Education and how their approval is being memorialized for this requirement. But if you read the federal guidance, it will say prior written approval and that is generally being accomplished within the CCIP application itself. Each state has an opportunity to determine for themselves how they will memorialize that documentation. And so ODE is doing that within the CCIP application. And as always, any approved construction projects then must still adhere to the uniform guidance requirements, including Davis-Bacon prevailing wages, 
Um, so even though ODE does in effect pre-approve the project, it's not a guarantee that the project will ultimately be determined to be allowable. That will ultimately be up to management to ensure that you have maintained that compliance with the procurement rules and the cost principles throughout the entire course of the project in order to determine the overall allowability of the project. We've also, as we talked about, made clear that we can use ESSER and GEAR funding for renovations, to improve air quality, to promote social distancing and safe in-person instruction. And again, this is just the reference point for you on that guidance. The US Department of Education within their FAQs did make clear that those types of projects are specifically authorized uh, however, it is important that if you are undertaking any of those type of HVAC types of projects, that you are maintaining compliance with the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, um, and, and ensuring that those types of additional requirements are being met as part of the procurement. So that would all be part of your specs, making sure that those standards are in place for the project. The EPA and CDC also have a variety of um, guidance available. I've included those here for you so that you can click on those and find a lot of additional guidance about these standards that do apply to heating and cooling types of projects for environmental air quality. Those would be things, again, to make sure you are including in your bid specs as you undertake that type of work. We talked about the pre-approval within the CCIP ESSER assurances, you will find a requirement, uh, not just for ESSER, it is there for ESSER, but these would be your CCIP grant assurances for any federal program. So this would apply to Title I and the other projects as well that the federal programs that you're normally using within the CCIP. If you look at those grant assurances, you will find there is a requirement for prior approval of any type of construction or renovation type of project. So just be aware of that. Again, we're talking today a lot about ESSER, but I did want to emphasize that these are concepts from the procurement rules that would apply to any federal program. And Marnie, just because it's on point, I noted something in the chat where, and I'm sure you get this all the time, it's kind of within that lens of heating and cooling projects. Yes. If, if somebody has a specific question as to um, the facts of their situation, does it qualify? Who do they turn to for that answer? Yeah, so that's a great question. So if you're looking at a heating and cooling project and you're worried about whether or not it's gonna qualify because of the environmental CDC, EPA types of conditions, the guidance on the earlier slide that I provided here will take you to EPA guidance and CDC guidance that's been jointly prepared for ESSER types of projects. And I believe you will find within there some contacts for individuals you can reach out to. So as it pertains to those standards specifically, you should be able to reach some assistance there. For US EPA, we are within region five. So that is something to be aware of too. So if you look at US EPA's website and you're trying to decide 
who you should call, you would go to Region 5. Ohio is part of Region 5 for US EPA. They may be a helpful resource as well. Uh, I don't know that ODE could be much of a resource in the area of EPA types of standards, but certainly if it is just simply programmatic questions, allowable uses of funds, um, you know, that could be something ODE could assist with, and obviously your legal counsel as well. But yes, I, I would refer you back to Region 5 of the US EPA if it is specifically related to these types of standards. Thank US you. Department of Education too, ultimately, I don't know if you would get, um, unfortunately, US Department of Education can be hit or miss in terms of a timely response. So <laughs> that is the challenge. We don't have a long period of time with these programs uh, to enter into some of these decisions. When you really think about the lifespan of your ESSER one, two, and three, and you're looking ultimately out to those dates of obligation and then liquidation, you really don't have a long time to prepare for construction projects and make sure that they're gonna be completed. So also keeping all of that in mind um, is really important. So. If anybody is looking at those types of projects, you'd want to get moving on it sooner than later, ideally. Thanks, Katie. So are you required to get the ODE? So anytime we talk about the SEA, that's going to be in reference to the Ohio Department of Education. Are you required to get their approval prior to going ahead and bidding um, and advertising for bid? And the answer is no, you don't have to. Um, it is kind of enter at your own risk. The US Department of Education does allow you to start advertising for bids before getting that pre-approval in place. I will say in most cases, just based on the way the CCIP is set up and the way that this program funding works, most schools likely will obtain that ODA ODE approval pretty early on, likely in advance of actually undertaking any of these projects. But in the event that you needed to know that information, USDE does address it within their FAQs. And what does that pre-approval process look like with ODE? Under ESSER 1, for anybody that was contemplating construction or capital outlay from their ESSER 1 activities, it did look a little different than what it looks like with ESSER 2 and ESSER 3. And that is because ODE recognized, especially with all of the additional oversight and emphasis on this funding, that they should drill in a little deeper, perhaps, during that application project and obtain more information from schools about that capital outlay or that construction and the nature of it and exactly what the basis for it is. And so with ESSER 1, it really is budgeting for capital outlay with just a little bit of extra information about what you will do for part of that capital outlay. With ESSER 2 and ESSER 3, you'll notice you, you're somewhat taken to a sub-menu of an additional list of questions that you have to fill out in order to get your application for ESSER funding approved. And that is part of the reason why, just making sure they have a robust, robust process in place to ensure that 
they're doing their due diligence to vet these applications and be able to substantiate to the U.S. Department of Education that their internal control system over pre-approval is robust enough for these projects and the volume of dollars that will follow these projects. And all of that brings us now to the federal procurement rules. So, and the Uniform Guidance Act also contains very important other types of information that school districts will need to be aware of, including the cost principles. Generally, you can find all of this information in Title II of the CFR, Part 200. And then within that, you'll find cost principles in 200.400, uh, the procurement rules are in 200.300 because those are considered post-award rules that recipients need to follow once the award has been made from the Ohio Department of Education. If you needed to know the definition of any terms that we talk about today, those would be defined in the Part 200 introduction section to uniform guidance. So that's kind of the rough layout. It does include audit requirements. And it includes 11 appendices, one of which includes a variety of contract clauses that must be contained in sealed competitive bids. So if you do hit that simplified acquisition threshold, and now you have to undertake the um, formal construction project with sealed bids, these would be the, the types of contract clauses we're going to talk about later. It gives you sample language to include in your contracts. So that those appendices are really helpful too. Also important to know, the procurement rules for states are different than the procurement rules for local governments. Believe it or not, states have less requirements. It's much more robust when you look at the rules that apply to local governments than the rules that apply to states. This presents a little bit of a challenge for us because a lot of times we hear as auditors, hey, can I just go purchase something through the state's cooperative purchasing program? I don't wanna have to bid it out. I don't wanna have to go through all these hoops to procure a piece of equipment when I can get it through the co-op. And the answer to that is generally gonna be it's not that simple. You're going to have to use caution. When the state procures items that go into that cooperative purchasing program, they're following a different set of rules than local governments have to follow. And, and the schools are going to have to follow rules that are more restrictive in most cases than what the state of Ohio has to follow. So when you're looking at state cooperative purchasing programs, you can consider that to be one source, one price quote, if you will, on a piece of equipment, but it, it, it is not sufficient to simply consider it, I'm going to sole source it, the state co-op co program is going to be the lowest and best bid, I know it, so therefore I'm going to bypass going through all of the federal procurement cubes. Generally, you cannot do that because, again, the state didn't have to follow the same rules that you're going to have to follow when they procured that piece of equipment. The local government rules are contained in Title II of the Code of Federal Regulations, Part 200, and this will be Sections 318 through 327. Again, those are all of your procurement rules, very specific. We're going to talk about each area today. At a higher level, some of this does get you know, more in the weeds, 
So I'll warn you and give you some caution as we go through these areas and talk about them on areas where you may need to work with your legal counsel. The other thing to really be aware of is that the Uniform Guidance Act requires schools to have in place good internal controls that are specific to their procurement projects that they're going to undertake. So you need to have specific procurement policies in place that talk about what your policies and procedures will be for your individual school. Under the uniform guidance, no two schools should have identical procurement policies. They should be custom tailored to your own needs and your own processes. And if you haven't updated your procurement policies in a while, you should be aware that the Uniform Guidance Act was modified in 2020. So if you haven't updated your policy since 2020, odds are pretty good that you need to. And ideally you wanna get that done before you begin any type of procurement transactions. Get those policies up to date and make sure you have some good internal controls that you've developed to be able to prevent and detect any potential non-compliance for the federal program as a whole, as well as for procurement standards. So a lot of expectations there in terms of really developing good, strong internal controls around this funding and around procurement processes specifically. Keep in mind too, and we'll talk a little bit about this, Ohio law for competitive bidding does not sync up with federal procurement rules. I'm sure most of you have realized that by now there are differences between Ohio law and federal law. And in general, where there are conflicts, the most restrictive requirement will prevail. And those are the types of things that you really need to address within your policy. So it's important under Ohio law, there are certain areas for schools, there's quite a few areas that are carved out that are exempt from competitive bidding. It's important to recognize as part of your policy that if you're going to use federal funds to procure those items, that you would be required to follow federal procurement rules, even though you would not have to follow state competitive bidding laws for some of those areas. Those are the types of specific details you would want to mention within your policies. And if you did have an area where Ohio law sets a specific competitive bidding threshold, let's say $50,000. And we know the simplified acquisition threshold under the federal procurement rules is $250,000. Then again, you would go with the most restrictive. And this would be another example of an area within your policy that you'd wanna make sure your policy addresses. So in that case, the most restrictive policy threshold, procurement threshold would be 50,000. So we would have to comply with that $50,000 threshold for federal procurements as well. So keeping those things in mind. You also are required under the procurement standards to maintain contract oversight. So if you do undertake construction, you have to overly, you have to actively be overseeing that activity going on site as needed. Um, overseeing the construction, making sure it's up to specs, up to par. Uh, conducting that type of oversight is actually a requirement of the procurement standards. So somebody within the school district would 
need to be appointed with that responsibility to oversee the work that's being done and ensure it's meeting the RFP or the RFQ specifications and those that are ultimately in the contract. You need to have written standards of conduct covering employees for conflicts of interest. And these conflict of interest requirements are very similar to what Ohio ethics law requires, except that they have to be part of your procurement policy. And we'll talk a little bit about this. You also have to, within your procurement policy, address any discipline that will be received as a as recourse for violating any of these conflict of interest policies. So that has to be spelled out all within your procurement policy. You have to avoid unnecessary or duplicative items. And this is where that lease versus purchase analysis does come in. You have to encourage state and local intergovernmental agreements where that's feasible and where it makes sense. So you are permitted under the federal procurement rules to work together you can create joint purchasing arrangements with multiple school districts or an ESC and multiple school districts going together on a particular project. The key there is generally gonna be, you still will have to substantiate that each of you received your proportional benefit based on the amount of federal funding that you contributed toward that project. And somebody will have to be responsible for maintaining all of the required documentation under the procurement standards and sharing it with all of the schools that are part of that agreement because they each need to be able to document for their own audits that federal procurement rules were complied with throughout the joint project. If federal surplus property is available, you are encouraged to use that as opposed to buying new you can go to the state of Ohio's DAS website at any time to see what federal surplus property is out there and available. You're encouraged to use value engineering clauses if it's feasible. Uh, you can award contracts only to responsible bidders, which is very much like Ohio law. Uh, so responsible contractors are gonna be the lowest and or the best just like Ohio law. So it's not always gonna default to the cheapest bid or the cheapest project. You do get some consideration over the most responsible contractor who, who is best able to meet our needs, even if they cost us a little bit more because of the quality standards that they maintain or because of some specific need that we have that is being addressed by only this one contractor. So there is opportunity to look at both sides, um, the lowest and the best, in making those evaluations. You have to maintain all of your procurement records for audit, and there's very limited use of what's considered to be time and materials contracts. We'll talk about those, but those are kind of those open-ended contracts where you don't really know what the cost to the work is going to be until after it's completed. So federal rules really limit the use of those types of contracts. And if there's any issues, disagreements with a contractor or a bidder that comes out of the procurement process, those have to be settled. So that is mentioned within the Uniform Guidance Act that if in the event you do have issues that arise out of the procurement process, all of those issues need settled uh, in order for the federal award to be able to be used to pay for the ultimate project. 
Thank you, Marnie. That wraps up this episode of the OASBO podcast. If you'd like to watch the complete webinar with Marnie, you can find it in the on-demand section at learn.oasbo-ohio.org and linked in the description of this podcast. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode and subscribe so you get episodes as soon as they come out on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, please connect with us at collaborate.oasbo-ohio.org. Thank you.